Welcome to Backlog Books. In this podcast, I will be recapping and discussing what I've been reading lately. My name is Kara. Thank you for joining me, and please be prepared for spoilers. I want to do a quick note here at the beginning that the setting of this book is based on Korea. So I asked a friend to help me with the pronunciation of the names in this book. So hopefully I don't mangle them, but I'm not an expert. I'm going to give it a go. If my pronunciations suck, let me know and I will give it another try. Let's get started. This time we are talking about Phoenix Extravagant by Yoon Ha Lee, who is a repeat author. I don't repeat authors very often. I think this is the fourth time, maybe. Because I did two Robin McKinley's, two Anne McCaffrey's, two Robert Jordan's, and now two Yoon Ha Lee's. Here is the summary. Yen Jebi isn't a fighter or a subversive. They just want to paint. One day, they're jobless and desperate. The next, Jebby finds themselves recruited by the Ministry of Armor to paint the mystical sigils that animate the occupying government's automaton soldiers. But when Jebby discovers the depths of the Razane government's horrifying crimes and the awful source of the magical pigments they use, they find they can no longer stay out of politics. What they can do is steal a Razi, the Ministry's mighty dragon automaton, and find a way to fight. Phoenix Extravagant was published in 2020. Our author, Yoon Ha Lee, is Korean-American and was born in 1979. I talked about him a little bit more in episode 19 of this podcast, where I talk about Nine Fox Gambit. I have since read the sequels and a short story collection set in the same world as Nine Fox Gambit, and I enjoyed them all very much. So when I saw that Lee had another adult novel out, I could not resist. This is one of the few books I have read with a non-binary protagonist. It might be the only one, actually. I've read books with non-binary side characters, but not usually main point of view characters. Jebby's pronouns are they, them. I found it easy to keep track of. I don't remember any moment where I had to go back and double check to make sure I knew to whom the sentence was referring. It's not a big deal, which I liked. Lee has a way of just writing different gender identities and sexualities into his work. The book brings up that people who are non-binary usually cut their hair in a certain way, and that's it. Stories about coming out and about struggling to accept who you are and to get others to accept who you are, those are important stories to tell. And it's been really cool to see more and more of those stories being published lately. I think it's also important and also really cool to see stories with LGBT people just existing, just being part of the world. Where Nine Fox Gambit was more of a science fiction book, Phoenix Extravagant is more of a fantasy book, I would say, with elements of the folklore and legends of Korea, including things like Gumiho, fox spirits, and a celestial realm where the gods live. 
I like to think that Lee doesn't bother trying to keep sci-fi and fantasy completely separate. Because why limit yourself? There's no reason your dragon book can't also have robots. And like there was a hint of fantasy in Nine Fox Gambit, there's a hint of sci-fi in Phoenix Extravagant with the automatons, which are like robot security guards slash soldiers who are powered by magic. The magic that brings them to life is powered by certain rare paints. This kind of magic was inspired by Lee's own experience with a now- I don't necessarily want to say extinct paint color, but a paint color that is no longer being made. Quinacridone gold. This gold paint is no longer being made using the original pigments, the original chemical makeup. If you see it anywhere, it's likely a new mixture. I tried to find, like, one comprehensive article about it. I wasn't able to. But what I've pieced together from various blogs, articles, and what Lee has said in interviews is that this pigment was used for car paints, but car manufacturers eventually discontinued the color, and for some reason it couldn't be manufactured for artists. So an art company called Daniel Smith bought the world supply of the pigment and ran out a few years ago. So that single pigment paint now only exists in people's art stashes. I just thought that was really cool. So you get it. Magic paints, special pigments. The setting of Hwaguk is based on Korea during the Japanese occupation from 1910 to 1945. As you might imagine, this was not a good time. I don't have the knowledge to do justice to this topic. As always, I will put further reading in the show notes if you want more information. And just like with Jade City, I read this book before the Russian invasion of Ukraine began. As of right now, as I'm recording this podcast, it's ongoing. In Jade City, however, the foreign occupation was history. It had been overcome. In Phoenix Extravagant... It's ongoing. It's the backdrop for why this whole story is happening. I have never lived under occupation by a foreign country. I've never faced an invasion. I'm an American. Historically, we're the ones doing the invading, which is not a positive. I think Lee wrote this well. Our main character, Jebby, who was only 17 when Hua Guk was occupied by Razan, mostly ignores what's going on. They focus on their art, and at the beginning, they wonder if the Razan occupation is really all that bad. Razan brought in electricity and other modern changes that Jebby personally finds have made their life a little easier. And so... Jebby is sort of buying in that, like, this occupation was initially disruptive, but now it's just a fact of life for them. And there's also this implication that Razan is protecting them from the threat of Western invaders. So that's been a lot of setup. At the beginning of the book, 
Jebby is focused solely on figuring out how they can make a living as an artist. They secretly register under a new Razane name, hoping that they will be considered more hireable. They're gradually assimilating into Razan's culture because it's what they need to do to survive, so they figure what's the harm. Jebby actually goes into debt to change their name and hides all of this from their sister, Bong Sunga. Bong Sunga isn't in much of the book, but her influence over her sibling is unmistakable. She basically raised Jebby and has supported their art for years without complaint. But she is antagonistic toward Razan. Bong Sunga's wife was killed in the early days of the occupation. So, Jebi hides their new name and debt because they know Bong Sunga would not approve. Jebi pins all their hopes on a job at the Ministry of Art, and then they don't get that job. It's at this point when Jebi is despondently wandering the city, wondering if their sister will forgive them, when they're found and offered a job. One they literally cannot refuse. The Ministry of Armor, which constructs the automata that patrol the city and enforce laws, needs an artist, and Jebby is the ideal person. They are blackmailed into the job, with the minister threatening Bong Sunga's life. Now, as Jebby is hidden away at the Ministry of Armor, they are faced with the darker reality of the occupation, something they have been ignoring in favor of art. The way their culture is subsumed into Razan, considered as a curiosity and less important, something to collect in a museum. And there's the ongoing subjugation of Huaguk citizens, considered good only to be servants or to assimilate into Razan. Jebi is placed under the watchful eye of Vey, a half-Razan, half-Huaguk master duelist. Vey is kind and friendly. Jebi isn't used to intrigue or lying, and they're trying really hard to be cautious. They have no way of knowing where Vey's loyalty really is, but they're attracted to her despite themselves. Also, Lee has never written an uncomplicated romance for a main character that I've seen, so that whole situation is extremely messy in a way I don't have time to fully explore. Just trust me. Jebby's new job has two main elements. One, to make new magic paint, and two, fix a malfunctioning automaton. Making new paints is easy. The problem is the method. In order to make their magic paints, the Razan have been collecting ancient Huaguk art and artifacts and destroying them, using the remnants in the paint. The older and rarer the art, the more powerful the magic in the paint. And I think because Jebi is such a consummate artist that it's really this point where they see their country's art being destroyed, that helps them understand the harm the Razanea are doing. 
Debbie, like I said earlier, was very sheltered by their sister. And more than that, they never wanted to know. It was always easier to keep their head in the sand. Now, deciding that the country occupying yours is bad and you want to do something about it is one step. But Jebby still doesn't know what their next step should be. They're trapped in the Ministry of Armor, their sister's life is being threatened to ensure their good behavior, and most of all, Jebby is an artist. They aren't a fighter. Just as a reader, I like books where the main character isn't martially inclined. It's fun when a character can just punch their way out of problems, but it doesn't make sense for that to be every story. And it would be incredibly out of character for Jebby to pick up a sword. But let's not forget part two of their new job, fixing a malfunctioning automaton, a war machine named Arazi. Most automata are vaguely human-shaped. Arazi is the first automata shaped like a dragon. And we know from this book that dragons are rare, and no one has seen them in a long time. But I love that the shape that they have given Arazi is a dragon, because there's a point in the book where Arazi offers to fly Jebby to safety, and Jebby asked, can you fly? Were you given that? When they designed you, did they give you that ability? And Arazi answers, I'm a dragon. Of course I can fly. I just liked it a lot. The Ministry of Armor has great hopes for using Arazi to solidify their foothold in Huaguk before the Western invaders can arrive. And Jebby hates the idea of fixing a war machine. But they also figure they can't trust everything the Ministry has told them. So they make a way to communicate with the Dragon Automaton and discover something unexpected. Arazi's original creator gave it free will, gave it the ability to choose, and it has chosen to be a pacifist. Now, being able to talk with Arazi helps Jebby decide what to do. It can be difficult to stand on your own for your own sake against a powerful enemy. But Jebby won't force Arazi to be a war machine, and they can't stand to be complicit in the destruction of their culture's art and history. So they make a plan with Arazi and attempt to escape from the ministry and reach the resistance, the people in Huaguk who have been fighting against Razan this whole time. But Jebby is sort of hopeless as a protagonist. Or, not hopeless, but their skills really don't work for this kind of situation. They do their best, but they are caught. And it seems like they won't be able to escape, and Arazi will be turned into a war machine against its will. But along comes Vey. Vey abandons her post as a master duelist and risks her life to get Jebby and Arazi to safety with the Huaguk resistance. It's a massive risk for her. The resistance could take one look and decide she's too Razan to trust. But they, 
unlike Jebby, is extremely competent and extremely martial and knows and accepts the risks that she takes. At the resistance camp, Jebby finds another surprise. Bong Sunga, their sister, who is apparently in charge of this part of the resistance. Jebby had no idea how deep their sister was in the resistance against Razan. And it's just another piece of this whole puzzle that Jebby ignored in favor of art. Bong Sunga wants all of them, they, Jebby, Arazi, to join the fight against Razan. While Jebby agrees the occupation should be fought against, they know their strengths, and their strengths do not include fighting. And also, they want to honor Arazi's choice to be a pacifist. In the end, Jebby, Vey, and Arazi figure out a way that they can help. They gather priceless historic artifacts and art and take them somewhere safe, where Razan can't destroy them to make more war machines. It's nice to see Jebby find a way to use their strengths to help. They're still primarily an artist, distracted on a battlefield by a flash of beautiful color, or wondering how to compose a painting of that exact moment later. They don't have to be a fighter to help. They just have to be themselves. Now, flying off into the sunset with Vey and Arazi is not how this book ends. The best-case scenario after your country has been invaded and occupied is that you get your country back, mostly in one piece. What happens next for Hua Guk, what happened next for Korea, is the arrival of Westerners. People have asked Yoon Ha Lee if he plans to write more in this world, and his answer has been, I'd always intended this book as a standalone, in the sense that what it has to say about imperialism and colonialism is complete in this volume. If you look at history, Korea did not throw off the Japanese occupation with a plucky rebellion. History isn't that neat or merciful. I usually prefer happy endings for stories. With that being said, I really enjoyed this book. Jebby's lack of awareness as a protagonist got kind of frustrating at times. And of course, I didn't cover the complicated romance angle. But the magic, the world, the story, the writing, I liked all of it. One of Lee's strengths as an author is writing complicated situations with no easy answer. The problem isn't solved, fixed at the end, wrapped up with a little bow. He always gives you a lot to think about. And also always manages to tell a complete, compelling story. And that's it. If you want more media like this, try An Unkindness of Ghosts by Rivers Solomon, which is about a generation ship modeled after the Confederate South. It's sad and compelling, with a main character who isn't a fighter, but sees and acknowledges the atrocities around her and does what she can to change things. 
Also, if you want to see regular writing from Yoon Ha Lee, he has a Patreon and posts short stories every month. Join me next time to hear about A River Enchanted by Rebecca Ross. Have you read next episode's book or this book? I'd love to hear what you think about it. You can email me at backlogbookspod at gmail.com if you enjoyed this podcast and would like to support it. The best way to do that right now is to rate and review it or just share it with a friend. You can follow the podcast on Facebook at Backlog Books Podcast. The music is by Joseph McDade. You can hear more of his work at josephmcdade.com. Thank you for spending this time with me. I hope to talk with you again soon.